Last week we looked at the, the bulk of chapter 2, the end of it, and the second half of it, and the cleansing of the temple. Remember, uh, Jesus came into the temple during Passover week, stormed into the court of the Gentiles. He drove out the people selling lambs and doves and oxen and other animals, uh, things that were to be used for, for Passover sacrifices. He turned over tables where money was being exchanged. And in the process, the Sadducees, one of the group of Jewish leaders, became angry with him because they were running the market. And then the Pharisees, the other group of sort of teachers of Israel, um, were probably happy because they didn't like the market being there in the middle of the temple anyway. They didn't like the, the temple grounds being used for these things. That is until they asked him for a sign. And if you remember, he said, when they asked him, you know, under whose authority do you do these things, his response was, if you'll tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And they were like, what? That's just craziness. What are you talking about? And John whispers in our ear um, that, uh, that Jesus, you know, that what Jesus was really talking about was the resurrection. And, and even the disciples didn't understand that until later on. But when they asked him about these things, um, you know, their response was that it was crazy. They said, look, it took us 46 years to build the temple to this point. You're not going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days. And so Jesus has got their attention. He's sort of under their skin a little bit. He's creating some chaos, and they're wondering, where did you come from, and why are you doing this, and who gave you this authority, and all these sorts of things. And so, like I said, John gives us some insight there that Jesus was pointing them forward beyond that moment to his resurrection, to the fact that there is a greater temple, that the earthly temple that they were standing before that day was not an end unto itself, that even the existence of the temple was pointing forward to a greater sacrifice. The temple was the place where they did sacrifices, but the ultimate sacrifice was not going to be in that temple, but on a cross outside of town where Jesus, the, the true Lamb of God, would be crucified. And so Jesus was pointing them to those things. That he came into the world to be the presence of God among them and to lay down his life as a perfect sacrifice for his people. Like we said, the, the Pharisees wouldn't have understood all this at the time. They would have been completely confused by about what Jesus was talking about. Um, some of them would ultimately understand you know, after the resurrection and those things. Maybe they put some pieces together. We think um, that we have evidence that some of them believed or whatnot. Uh, but today in our passage, we see one Pharisee who is massively intrigued. There's one Pharisee here who sees something special in this Jesus guy. And he's determined to meet him and find out more about him and the signs, the, you know, the one doing these signs and challenging the authorities. And so we're going to start today by reading. Uh, we're going to read from John chapter 2, verse 23, down through verse 15 of 3. And we're going to meet a guy named Nicodemus. Uh, give great attention to the reading of the very word of God. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem, he being Jesus at this point, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed, to, needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Would you give us understanding this morning as we talk about these concepts that confuse Nicodemus? God, would you give us understanding about these things? That we might rejoice in the fact that the Spirit is at work among us, giving us new birth, new life, and giving us ultimately eternal life. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we started up in verse 23 of chapter 2, and it's because this, uh, this paragraph here, 23 through 25, is a transition paragraph kind of between what's happened, uh, the, the introduction to the signs, the, the wedding at Cana, and then the cleansing of the temple, and what's to come afterwards, which is some encounters that Jesus has with, with four different people over the next few chapters. Uh, with Nicodemus here, a teacher of the law, one with a promiscuous woman, uh, one with a government official, and then he has an encounter with a lame man. And so this paragraph is kind of setting us up for those stories that are to come. Of course, today we'll look at the story of Nicodemus. Uh, this paragraph here at the end of chapter 2 tells us that people are amazed at the signs and miracles of Jesus, and they're starting to follow him. But we're told that Jesus didn't entrust himself to these people because it says he knew all people, meaning he understood their hearts and what they were really about, not just what they were doing, which was following him in a physical sense. He understood their hearts. The implication here is that they weren't interested in Jesus for himself, but they were interested in his signs, almost as if he were a magician who come to town with the big top circus or something. And they were in interested in him and what he could do for them. They were interested in the miracles, but Jesus knew they needed more than miracles, more than signs. They actually need new life. They need internal transformation. And that leads us here to the encounter and, and with Nicodemus in the middle of the night. All right, the first thing we know or learn here about Nicodemus is that he's a Pharisee. Now, we tend to talk about the Pharisees a lot, but the question is that we need to kind of deal with is where do they come from and why are they so powerful and so involved at this point in history? What was actually going on? Well, the Pharisees were a group of Israelites who took the scriptures extremely seriously. They knew their scriptures and they wanted to obey them to the fullest extent possible. Because we're so familiar with the warnings that Jesus gave or pronounced upon the Pharisees, kind of the warnings and the, the you know, he, he spoke most harshly against those who were self-righteous. And we'll talk about why the Pharisees were, were that group in a minute. But, and so because of that, we tend to view the Pharisees sort of negatively. But a first century Jew would have seen them as essentially superheroes of the faith. They would have been to revere. You would hope your child would grow up to be a Pharisee, possibly. 
Now, Nicodemus likely would have been a young man like this who would have wanted to give himself to knowing God fully. And when he looked around at who in the culture was doing that, who was pursuing the law, who was seeking to love God, there's one group that stood out, and it was the Pharisees. So Nicodemus would have wanted to be one of them. He would have wanted to be like them, that endeavoring with the most passion and seriousness after God. Um, and so if that's what he wanted, he, he, he would be aligned with the Pharisees. And so that's what happened. Now, almost 200 years before Nicodemus was born, in 167 B.C., the king of Syria entered into the most holy place in the temple in Jerusalem, where only the high priest was allowed to go once a year. And when this foreign king entered this most holy place, he performed an unconscionable act. We'll get to that in a minute. The Syrians had taken control of the Hebrew people. And Antiochus IV Epiphanes, sort of the, the king of the Syrians, had made it his personal crusade to make sure that the Israelite people gave up their own culture to adopt Greek culture and religion and language and philosophy. And his, plans was work, and his plan was working. As they brought the Hebrew people into their own culture, the Hebrews were assimilating. They were giving up their own beliefs, and they were embracing the beliefs of the, of the Greeks. And so uh, his plan is working. The Hebrews were assimilating into the culture of their captors here nicely. Except there was a group among the Hebrews who hadn't give up, given up hope that they could ultimately go back home and be their own people to live for the glory of God. They had not forgotten about home and all that God had done for them. So these, these men established places of worship and prayer called synagogues. That's where the synagogues first came into being. And they appointed men to lead in these places called rabbis to teach and, and lead these synagogues. And so they appointed a group of men amongst them to articulate for them what strict observance of the law would look like for a true Israelite. So you see what's happening here. The Israelites as a whole are being assimilated into the culture. There's some among them who said, wait, put on the brakes. Stop. We want to honor God. How are we going to do that? We're going to give places to worship. We're going to put men in charge of those places to help us worship and obey the law. And then we're going to appoint some others to go and study what would strict observance of the law look like. So we go, well, that's all great things. We're going to follow the law. So at this point, we're, we're good, right? The king of Syria gets bothered by this, eventually just outlaws Hebrew religion as a whole uh, in an attempt to completely assimilate these Israelites into his culture. He wants to stamp out any remaining hope from these people. So he outlaws circumcision. He outlaws Sabbath observance. He uh, outlaws the Hebrew feast days. He even burns all the copies of the book of Moses that he could find. He threatened death upon any who would disobey him, and he was not slow to back up that threat. <coughs> this is tyranny in this sense. Antiochus went to Jerusalem and announced that the great Hebrew temple was now a temple dedicated to the worship of Zeus, the great Greek god, the ultimate Greek deity. And to make his point, he went into the most holy place and set up a statue of Zeus right there by the, you know, the most, in the most holy place of all of Israel, in the very temple itself. And not only did he set up a statue to Zeus, right there on the altar of the Lord, he sacrificed a pig to the glory of Zeus. Now, if you know anything about Hebrews and pigs, the pigs were unclean. This is maybe the most vile thing that you could do, was put the this blood of this unclean animal on the altar of the Lord. You have defaced it forever. And this is what Antiochus IV Epiphanes has done. He's gone into the most holy place and done the most vile thing he could think of. And he thinks that in the midst of doing this, that he's finally going to break the will of these Hebrews. 
that they're finally going to just give up and go, okay, you won. You've even taken our temple. We're done. But that's not what happened. He actually wakes them up and emboldens them. They get a new fire in their belly. They're ready to come and take what's theirs, what they believe that God, God has given to them. A Jewish man named Judas Maccabeus organized enough of a resistance to rise up and fight. In 164 BC, they were able to take back most of Jerusalem from the Syrians. And the religious leaders among them began cleansing the temple and building a new altar, an altar that was unstained with this offensive blood of Antiochus' sacrifice. These faithful religious leaders became known as the most brave, self-sacrificing men of all of Israel. They were heroes for restoring the temple and essentially restoring the people of God back to this land, at least the beginnings of that, that movement. Some of these faithful men split off to pursue holiness, separate from the common people of Israel, who they viewed as unfaithful for embracing the Greek culture. So you had some that became monastic. They kind of went off by themselves and said, we're going to be the... This is distracting us from being holy. All these Israelites who were lukewarm, we're going to go be super holy over here by ourselves. Well, there's another group from those faithful men that said, no, we believe our calling is to help all of Israel be faithful. And so we want to live within the culture with all the people of Israel and help them and teach them and train them in righteousness. Those are the people that we know as the Pharisees that we hear about here. They wanted so badly to keep from breaking the law that they even wrote new and more strict laws to prevent, to prevent them from coming anywhere near to breaking God's law. But over time, these Pharisees seemed to care more about being right than they did about knowing God. And so in their zeal for the law, they became more obsessed with the law than they were obsessed with God. They became obsessed with external holiness. They were convinced that their obedience to the law would earn them a place of honor in the kingdom of God. Okay, so the reality, though, about Phariseeism, we'll put an ism on there, that's what people do, right? So we got Phariseeism, this pursuit of external righteousness, and here's what we know about it. It doesn't actually work. It doesn't do what it claims it can do, which is keep the law and therefore earn God's favor. Why is that? Because God said, what was the standard of righteousness? If you want to pursue the law for your righteousness, on what level do you have to pursue that? Where's the line where you cross into, God will find favor with me? Perfection, holiness, righteousness, absolute perfection. What's the problem with that? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Does that include those holy Pharisees who rescued us from the tyranny of the Syrians? Yes! There's only one who's holy and righteous and perfect. That's Jesus. Everyone else falls short of his glory. And therefore, it's impossible for Phariseeism to work because we're all sinners. And the wages of sin is death. Jesus reserved, as I said, he reserved his harshest criticism for those who relied on these outward external good works. He called them whitewashed tombs. Think about that for a second. It's a word, it's a picture, right? He says, basically, you're this gravesite, and you know, your marble headstone or whatnot, your crypt, has been whitewashed. It's beautiful. It's to be marveled at. But what's going on on the inside of that grave? Death. Death. 
You may look great on the outside, but if what's on the inside is dead, you're dead. Phariseeism doesn't work. But we're easily fooled by the merits of outward righteousness, right? Outwardly, we would love for our kids to be Pharisees if it didn't have that title. We, because the Pharisees want to obey all the time. And us parents, we need to be careful that we aren't simply encouraging obedience for obedience sake. So that it might be quiet for three minutes or something. I don't know anything about that. Or more likely that we're encouraging obedience to earn our favor. And so we have to be careful that we aren't training up our children to be little Pharisees. Or big Pharisees in my case. No, we've got to be dealing with our kids' hearts. Helping them to love God and love their parents and obey out of a heart that loves God, not from a heart that fears rejection because they've missed some point of obedience. From a heart that's free and full because it's already accepted, it's already loved, regardless of success or failure. It's, it's by grace. The love of God and the love of godly parents should, though, move our children towards obedience. When they know that we're loved, they should want to honor us. The same relationship that we have with God <laughs> is reflected in the relationship of kids with their parents. Of course, none of us parents are perfect, and none of our kids are going to get this right all the time, so we have to be consistently pointing our own hearts, parents' hearts, away from our own Phariseeism so that we can point our kids away from Phariseeism because the reality is we all tend to live like the Pharisees. That's our default, to look out for ourselves, to prove that we are worthy, to make our own way, ultimately celebrate our own glory. Because if, if a parent doesn't obey God out of love and gratitude, how can we expect our kids to obey God or, to, or us out of love and gratitude? Because the reality is they're watching and they're going to learn from us. They are watching and they are learning. I know that I struggle with this temptation. There used to be a sign in my office when I got here. The previous pastor had left it and said, I am a recovering Pharisee and I love my own righteousness. And that's true. Hopefully I'm recovering. But we all are naturally bent towards looking at ourselves and proving that we are worthy. But because we're recovering, what should our lives look like? Our lives should be lives filled with repentance and joy. Repentance because I don't get it right, because I'm pursuing the law, I'm pursuing the honor of God, and I fail. Therefore, I've got to repent of my failings. But joy at the same time because God loves me even when I fail because Christ has already paid for my sins. And it's not just our kids who are paying attention. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our relatives, they want to know if this Jesus stuff is real. And if all they see is a bunch of us who are centered on outward performance because we're afraid that God's going to get us if we mess up, which is what the Pharisees were worried about, they're not going to want anything to do with our God or our religion. Who wants that? External righteousness is insufficient to earn us a place in the kingdom of God. Even the best Pharisees are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. So there's got to be another way. 
if Phariseeism and good works doesn't get it done, what will get it done? Well, that leads us to Nicodemus. He sees Jesus cleanse the temple. He hears this strange explanation about rebuilding the temple in three days, and he's intrigued. There's something different about this guy, Jesus. He's also seen and or heard, we don't know exactly what his experience was here, but he's heard about the signs that Jesus is doing. And he has to know, is God really with this man? Because the things I'm hearing are impossible. Water into wine? The authority to cleanse the temple and live? And, and other things that we don't know about. Remember John said there's stories on top of stories that couldn't fill up all the books of the world and it wouldn't be enough. There's, there's other things even going on here that we aren't told about. But Nicodemus is seeing Jesus and he's wondering, is God with this man? That's the question. What Jesus teaches Nicodemus in this encounter is something we all need to understand. Our eternal life depends on it. Okay, so here's one thing we need to remember about Nicodemus and all the Pharisees. They loved the scriptures. Nicodemus loved the scriptures. He was an expert in the scriptures. And, uh, and particularly in the Old Testament, I mean, which was the scriptures at the time. And so this passage, in this passage, Jesus is speaking his language, so to speak. We'll see that as we go through. That'll become apparent here. All right, Jesus shocks Nicodemus here. Nicodemus comes to him under the cover of darkness. Why? Because the Pharisees wouldn't have been happy with him if he were sneaking around seeing Jesus. And so he goes under the cover of darkness and he, he meets with Jesus and, and he, you know, he comes to him and he says, Rabbi, so he's respectful, says, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he makes a statement, but in his mind is a question behind that, right? Are, is God really with you? Or is there something else going on here? And Jesus shocks him by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, so, so why is this shocking? What, what about this is unsettling to Nicodemus? Well, it's unsettling because Jesus is essentially saying to this morally upright Pharisee, I know all about you, what you're about, your good works, your, your, your pursuit of the law, your pursuit of outward righteousness, all these things. And he says, even in light of those things, unless you are born again, you won't even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has got to be thinking, no, 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 I'm a Pharisee. We're the good guys. We are the holy guys. We are the ones who have gotten it right. We're trying to help everyone else get it right. If everyone else were like us, then we'd all be okay. And Jesus says, no, you're looking at it wrong. You're looking outwardly. You need to be looking inwardly. So he says, how does this even work? Can an old man re-enter his mother's womb and be born again? Can an old man re-enter his mother? So he's thinking about this physically, outwardly. And we know that we aren't in control of our birth, right? We're talking to Sunday School this morning about the story in the news this week about the guy who's suing his parents for being born, for having him without his consent. Gosh, this is what we've come to in this world, right? Yeah, he thinks it's evil, that the world's overpopulated, it's evil to add more people to the world. He is part of that evil and he didn't want to be, and so he's suing his parents for having that. And we go, that's ludicrous. Why is it ludicrous? Because we know that we have nothing to do with our birth. We, we have no say in it. We just show up and grow up into it, right? Okay. 
So when, but when, when Nicodemus is asking this, he's asking about the physical nature of how new birth might work, born again might work. But what's behind that is the spiritual reality. What he should be asking essentially is, do you mean that I've done this all wrong and I need to start over? And in his mind, he's going, that's impossible. I can't go back and do this differently. You just can't start over. Jesus answers Nicodemus by referring to Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel would have been, I mean, Nicodemus would have been very familiar with Ezekiel. He loved the scriptures. He was an expert in the scriptures. And Jesus says to him, Unless one is born of the water of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And you go, well, what does, what does that mean? Well, he's referring to a passage in Ezekiel 36. It says this. Uh, the prophecy there or, um, through Ezekiel says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Sounds a lot like recent history to the Pharisees, right? It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Uncleannesses, sorry. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So there's a cleansing with water that signifies an inward cleansing. The outward cleansing with water, the baptism there, it signifies an inward cleansing. And then it says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. So what is Jesus trying to tell Nicodemus? Because he's saying it in light of this passage. He's saying, you've been looking at the outward things. God's concerned with the inward Jesus is telling Nicodemus that what he needs is not outward conformity to the law to earn God's favor. What he needs is to acknowledge his sinfulness and be cleansed from his sins and have his heart changed. He needs internal transformation. That transformation that will affect him so deeply that it will be like he is experiencing a spiritual new birth, completely starting over and seeing everything from a new perspective. It will be like being born again physically but it's happening spiritually. Nicodemus, like all of us, needed to be washed from the inside. He needed his heart transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And only when this happened could he truly begin living a life that pleases God and finding the path of true obedience. Look, this, what the point that Jesus is making is that this is the work of God. This is the work of the Spirit, not the work of men. God does not demand outward conformity from us because that would require perfection, as we've already mentioned. And we have already pointed out, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even Nicodemus, even you, even me. What Nicodemus needed, what we all need, is actual righteousness. That's something we can't attain for ourselves. The righteousness that we need is impossible to conjure up because we've already sinned. We were born into sin. David said, I was sinful from the moment of my conception. The righteousness that we, the righteousness that we need is only present in Christ. He's the only one that's worthy. 
But the good news that Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus is that God has sent him, his son, the son of man, he titles himself, into the world to be righteous on our behalf and that the righteousness that we need can be received from him as a gift. He's teaching Nicodemus about grace. The crazy thing about this work of the Spirit that gives new birth is uh, is that we can't control it. It is fully the work of the Spirit inside of us. And we can't control the Spirit any more than we can control where the wind blows at any certain moment. Can you imagine Nicodemus walking home from this encounter? He's just been told, this is not about you, it's about the work of God. And the work of God comes upon you like the, spirit, like the wind blows across the plains. But we can't control it. And he's walking home, and he turns a, maybe he turns a corner into an alley, and the and wind just beats him in the face. And he's starting to understand. I have nothing to do with that. I can't stop it. I can't control it. I can't cause it. And Jesus is saying, that's the way that the Spirit works in me. My whole life I've thought, I'm in control of this. I am the one who determines my own righteousness. And if I am zealous for the law, then I will attain it. I will get there. And this Jesus guy is saying that it has nothing to do with me. It's like the wind blowing around in the streets. We know a little secret about Nicodemus, though, don't we? He doesn't go away into the night and never come back again. He's there at the end. We aren't necessarily told about what his faith life is or whatnot, but he's still there. Whether he's still trying to figure it out and put all the pieces together and maybe the resurrection helps him, or maybe he's figured it out somewhere along the way and he's following Jesus. But Nicodemus is still there. Why? Because ultimately this makes sense to him. How does it make sense to him? Because the Spirit's at work. If Nicodemus gets this, it's because the Spirit has blown into his life and has changed everything about him. It's opened his eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. Verses 10 and 11, Jesus tells Nicodemus his truth has been right before his eyes the entire time. They were in Ezekiel. But it's difficult for a Pharisee to see these things because they are so convinced that their outward righteousness is the most important thing. They miss the truth that this is an inward working of the Spirit, just like the book of Ezekiel said hundreds of years ago. It's been right there. This isn't new. Jesus isn't changing the rules. Salvation's always been a work of the Spirit. Jesus ends by giving Nicodemus the direction that he needs to look to Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who has come from heaven, and the one who, like the serpent in the wilderness, must be lifted up. We'll talk more about the serpent in the wilderness next week. We're going to start there and talk about the next part of chapter 3. But what we need to see now is that Jesus is pointing Nicodemus in one direction, towards the cross, this idea of being lifted up. One day, Nicodemus is going to see Jesus lifted up on a cross. But what's really happening is, as Jesus is being lifted up, he's actually laying down his life. So that everyone who trusts in him might have the righteousness that we need to stand blameless 
before a holy and righteous God. Our only hope at the end of the day is that we have not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And those who have the righteousness of Christ, which comes by faith, through grace, not of ourselves, so that no one can boast, is the only thing that will allow us to stand before a holy God and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what Nicodemus was chasing. But he was on the wrong road. The road to righteousness is the road of faith, the road of grace, not the road of works. Even though, ironically, the road of faith and grace leads us to good works. But they are not our hope. Our hope is Jesus and the work of the Spirit that reveals to us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Would you help us believe? Would you open up our eyes to see the futility of depending upon ourselves and our own good works? Would you help us to see the beauty of the fact that Christ has been righteous on our behalf? That our hope is not in ourselves, but in him who has descended from heaven, who has come into our world and has made righteousness available to us by his own good works and his own sacrificial death, the gift of himself to us. Give us faith that we might believe. Give us a hunger for righteousness that exceeds even the Pharisees because we're motivated not to earn your favor but to rejoice in the fact that our favor with you has already been earned and that we are free and we are loved because you are gracious and kind. It's in your son's glorious name we pray. Amen.